0: What was
1: that you said who can you trust
2: Hi, I'm Jen Garza, Executive Director of Texas 4000 for Cancer. You probably know us by our UT Austin student riders who devote their summer to cycling from Austin to Anchorage in the fight against cancer. Lucky for you, you don't have to work that hard today. You just have to listen to this Tribcast with Reeve Hamilton.
0: Thank you. This is reporter Reeve Hamilton here with the Tribcast for the second week of October. I am joined by executive editor Ross Ramsey. I could have ridden a bike to Alaska instead. That was an option. Okay, but well. instead, you're going to stick with us for 30 minutes. Now we know. We also have reporter Terry Langford. Hi, Reeve. And reporter Alexiura. Hello. Now, we're sort of going to have to begin on a somber note, I guess. We're recording this on Wednesday morning, and we've just found out that the – first Ebola patient diagnosed in the U.S., which happened in Dallas, as I'm sure listeners know, died this morning. Um, you know, it's sort of, it's the end of the story for him, I guess, but, you know, the this Ebola thing is still very prevalent in terms of what's on the minds of policymakers and people in the state and everywhere. And maybe Alexa, you could Bring us up to speed on what the mood is in Texas surrounding Ebola.
2: Yeah. So um, the hospital announced that he died this morning at 7.51 a.m. It's just a little bit over a week from when he was first diagnosed. Uh, But like you mentioned, it's not going to be the end of this conversation. There are still 50 individuals who are being closely monitored. Ten of them are said to be at high risk for possible contraction of the virus after coming in contact with the patient while he was showing symptoms. Four of those are his family members who remain quarantined somewhere in Dallas in an undisclosed location. So that will still be part of it. Lawmakers are trying to figure out what happened in the system that this man was sent home from his first visit to the emergency room when he was already showing symptoms and told hospital staff that he had been to like, to Africa and... Um, could have been and everything indicated that this could have been an Ebola case. He was sent home with a prescription for antibiotics. So now they're trying to figure out what happened there and they're also talking about ways to improve the state's public health system. In a case like this, the local health department has to take the lead in responding to something like this and not all health departments were created equally. And so, there's that question as well.
1: So nobody else is hospitalized at this point. No, nobody else is hospitalized. Right.
2: Nobody else is showing symptoms. You have to be showing symptoms to be contagious. So the risk for, for other people becoming infected is very, very low because no one is showing symptoms.
0: Not to be overly generous, but like how, how big of a mess up is it for these doctors to having nev- you know a case like this never having been in the U.S. before messing it up the first time around?
2: Well, I mean, they there, was, there were checklists involved. The CDC had been sending hospitals information about how to prepare for this, how to screen for this. Um, so it's just going to come down to whether they followed protocol in terms of screening and treating patients that come into their emergency room.
3: And it's still kind of blurry um, about what exactly happened at Presbyterian, right, right, Alexa? I mean, we still don't have a sense, what, a couple of weeks out and we still don't know? this handoff, whether it took place or it didn't between the nursing staff? Well,
2: the hospital staff first said this is an error in our electronic health records. There was sort of a a nurse pathway and a doctor pathway within the records, and those hadn't communicated um, the way they were supposed to. Then they went back and revised that, um, I think it was a day or two later, and said, never mind, everyone did have access to this information. So there's been a little bit of back and forth on that So they dropped the
1: ball on this one at at the end of it.
2: it? what it seems like and it's what most, peop- most health officials are saying. Although um, the CDC and the state's health commissioner have said, you know, they've done a good job. They were prepared to respond to this. But there was, you know, there was a breakdown somewhere along the way.
1: And having done that, I mean, what's your sense of, you know, everybody's they've sort of done an all hands on deck. Do they kind of um, have their protocols in place now?
2: Well, I think after this, you know, they've sent out, this is how we handled it. This is where the mess up happened in hopes that other hospitals will be able to learn from that. And that's what the CDC is pushing, you know, that this is a a teaching moment. But, you know, tell that to the people that might have been exposed after he was let go the first time.
0: Well, the governor has convened this task force who is now looking into this. I mean, is is that – I mean, we keep hearing – On the one hand, it's not. We don't actually have an outbreak in Texas or in the U.S. at the moment. We have one patient who had it, but we also have this massive task force. They're going to look into everything. Is that an overreaction? Is that an appropriate reaction? How's that? How do you guys feel like that is going so far? It's being led by Brett Mm Joya from Texas. How you say that? Sure. Gerard?
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, top I think Top Aggie Doc on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I think... that,
0: his Twitter handle was chosen by the students, I do believe. So
1: top Aggie Doc, really, that's his Twitter. he's right. the head of their health science center. Oh, yeah. great.
3: I think the
2: idea behind that is that Ebola is not easily spread because you have to come in close contact with bodily fluids. But if this were an airborne disease, if this were just like the common flu, the spread of it might have been much, much larger than what it was. And so the idea is to look into how to respond to not only the Ebola virus, but other sort of infectious diseases and whether we have a good system in place to do that.
0: Because we do not want to drop the ball on an airborne. Right.
2: I mean, it could be tragic if I mean, it would be a much bigger issue if, if this were an airborne disease
0: does this play politically? You hear, like, uh, Perry came out and said that the Obama administration, I think, should be setting up screening checkpoints and things like that, and you're starting to hit that's a big drum being beaten over at the Fox News headquarters.
1: Yeah, it, you know, it could play politically if it gets out of hand. I mean, you know, the, the advantage here is that as diseases go, this is a relatively slow-moving thing. It's not, you know, a flu outbreak. I think by the last time, heard something that by the last time we had a, a big flu outbreak, It had 14 million cases before all of the emergency systems went into effect. All of the emergency health systems went into effect. You know, flu's sort of the, you know, uh, granddaddy of these infectious diseases and Mm -hmm. really, really, you know, I mean, people are used to talking about it and everything, but it's a really deadly disease and it spreads really, really quickly. So they want to be in front of this. If you're not in front of this and people perceive that you should have been, and it's a public health system failure. Then that's going to get a bunch of finger pointing in politics. And you know they're gonna the you know the first level of finger pointing is always the feds point at the states, the states point at the feds. You know that um, the issue is you know when they when you finally get to a point where you say okay was where were the responsibilities here and who fell down? You know should we be checking everybody who gets on a plane? Well, I think now we are checking people who are getting on planes. Um, should you have? Do you wish you'd done that two weeks earlier? Sure. Should you have been? Well, that's that's up in the air. I don't know if it's actually going to turn quickly enough to have an effect on this year's elections, but it could have a political effect, and it could certainly go into legislation at either the federal or the state level.
0: Meanwhile, the week has not been short of news absent the Ebola virus you know, arriving on our shores. I think, Alexa, you were also working on uh, the implementation of HB2 was allowed to move forward. And what's the latest with that? Yeah, so
2: last year. You should Thursday, say what HB2
0: is. That's yes. sort of insider lingo for so abortion restrictions.
2: HB2 is um, what we call the strict abortion law that state lawmakers passed last summer. Um, it's basically led to the closure of all but eight facilities in the state that provide abortions. None of those are going to be south of San Antonio or west of Fort Worth. And so abortion providers were challenging the law in in two different lawsuits. The latest one against its ambulatory surgical center requirement basically means abortion facilities have to be up to those same standards to provide abortions. On Thursday, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the state could enforce the law as it went through the appeals process, which could take months. Um, And so this comes, you know, about... um, on August 29th was when a federal judge had sort of struck down the regulations and didn't allow them to go into effect for about a month is what they had. Um, so now the abortion providers are looking to the Supreme court to, um, put that injunction against the requirements back into place so that these abortion facilities can remain open during the appeals process. Their argument is that the longer they stay closed, the long, the less likely they'll be able to reopen if the
1: abortion providers win their case. So we're talking about abortion providers that are not ambulatory surgical centers. How Correct. many of those are there?
2: So they, at last count, we had about 20 or 19 total um 7 of those were going to be ambulatory surgical centers. Okay. So, so, I've-
1: so we've got about a dozen centers that if the law is left in effect can't per- uh can't perform abortions. Right. At and-
2: minimum about right. 13.
1: And, and are all of those going to close or are they just going to stop or are they going to close for this purpose?
2: Some of them, it's not, we're not sure how many exactly have closed at this point, but they can no longer provide abortions. Some of them have stayed open to provide other services, whether it's breast cancer screenings um, or other reproductive health services. But a lot of these might not be able to stay open without being able to provide abortions because that's going to be um, a big financial, uh, it's going to hurt them financially if they can't provide those.
1: Right. And it's not a great political argument that that's the profit center. Right. Right.
2: So um, we'll see how this goes. The state has until Thursday at noon to respond to the abortion providers' request to the Supreme Court. And then away we go. But
0: in the meantime, you did write a story about, you know, an alternative option that may be out there for uh, women seeking these services that can't get them anywhere near because of the restrictions that have gone into place.
2: Right. So doctors who provide less than 50 abortions a year in their offices don't have to acquire an abortion license for that facility, which basically means that they're exempt from the ASC requirement of HB2 and means they can continue providing these abortions at their facilities. But it's not very commonly done. Um, Last year, only 43 abortions were done in doctor's offices in the entire state Um, when each of them could technically be doing less than 50 and, and still be okay. Of course, um,
0: that's 43 that got put on the books.
2: Right, exactly. So, that's the other thing with this that there might be cases out there where um, people are, where cases are being reported as miscarriages and they might have been abortions. So, it's a reporting issue that also comes into play. But um, at the end of the day, it's an option if a woman can find a doctor who will do this. And um, how, do you, how
0: do you breach that? subject.
2: Right. right. So the the issue is that most doctors aren't going to advertise that they're doing this. Mm-hmm.
0: And the, how and what are the chances you think now that that story has been written that you see some bills about that in the coming legislative session? Well, you know, it was (laughs) interesting.
2: It was interesting. Can you get higher than that? (laughs) One of the um, anti-abortion groups that we talked to said, you know, this is a tiny number. We don't think it's going to grow that much now that HB2 has gone into effect. But they didn't rule out that they wouldn't pursue legislation on this. Um, And when they're looking ahead in terms of what other restrictions they could place on abortion, considering lawsuits against other sort of laws in other states, they're going to have to be very careful in sort of what they pass so that it remains unchallenged uh, legally and so this this might be one of those things that the limit has been dropped before in 2003 in 2002 it was at about 300 um that was a limit for the the number of abortions you could provide and that's down to 50
1: a, a doctor could perform up to 300 without reporting
2: Right, because the facility wouldn't be considered substantially used for abortions. It's it's a sort of a mess in the statutes um, to go through it. But that was a big drop. There was a bill passed in two thousand three that dropped the number of abortions being performed in doctors' offices from more than ten thousand down to I think it was three eighty eight the week the the year after, and now we're down to forty
0: three. Well, I think it's there's no question that. Some lawmakers will be trying to increase the restrictions beyond HB2 in the coming session. I think you know, Molly White, a new incoming state representative, has made mm-hmm. this a cornerstone of her campaign. I think in his inauguration speech where he compared uh, our current government to the Nazis, uh, State Senator Charles Perry said that abortion would be a you know an issue that he'd be interested in tackling. Compared it to the Holocaust. That's where the Nazis came in. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was quite a dramatic inauguration speech. Right.
2: Well, and there there was a doctor who said, you know, he wasn't endorsing the practice because he doesn't provide abortions in his office. But he said, you know, only time will tell whether doctors will step up and, and sort of offer the procedure in their offices, knowing that they can sort of fill in that gap created by HB2. But you know, we won't know for at least another year whether they did that or not.
0: In the mean, in the meantime, it's that the the Supreme Court is still has its eye on it
2: yes the state has until thursday to respond and then we'll see whether um they consider it during the last legal challenge the supreme court kind of brushed off um abortion providers attempts to sort of knock it up to the supreme court so we'll see what happens there's it's been said that at least one of the many um restrictions on abortions that are being fought in the different states will reach the supreme court Um, and some of them have similar restrictions to the one in texas
0: well, and the people also are also looking now to the Supreme Court to see if they might be taking up a Texas case on same-sex marriage. Isn't that right, Ross?
1: Yeah, so they walked past it. This, uh, and initially, uh, several states had, um, had cases, uh, challenges to their um, laws banning sta- same-sex marriages. <clears throat> the federal appellate courts have been pretty uniformly uh, ruling these unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court – in fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg predicted before the Supreme Court did anything that because the appellate courts were not in disagreement, that the chances that the U.S. Supreme Court would take up a case were shrinking. And, in fact, when they're um, – it, it's not exactly a deadline, but you know, when their date passed on which cases they were taking, when they said you know, these are the cases we're taking this term – They decided not to take a same sex marriage case. Now, the Texas case is pending in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, which is probably the most conservative of the appellate courts. And if that court doesn't stay in harmony with all the other appellate courts, then the Supremes could look at it and say, Okay, now we're taking the case. And they can do that any time they want to. They don't have to wait for their next term. They could do it, you know. Whenever, but the even Fifth Circuit,
0: even Ginsburg, who I think is officiated the gay wedding, is uh, right. you know said that we're not basically indicated that they wouldn't do it until there was some disagreement at the federal level.
1: Right. So you know, if you're looking for the disagreement, watch the Fifth Circuit. It's kind of the short form here.
0: Yeah. So Texas could be the uh, the state to topple it nationally.
1: Yeah, and you know, as long as it's intention, it's going to be you know a political issue. It's been a political issue for a long time. You know, the the long time um, line about Republicans. In elections has been God's guns and gays. And, you know, the guns issue is more or less settled in Texas anyway. You know, nobody's um, campaigning against that openly. Who's running for office? A lot of people campaign against it, but not people who are trying to trying to win office. Um, they campaign for guns to be carried openly. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, it's a difference. Right. But the marriage thing is turning, and you know, if you look at voting demographics and everything, it's particularly turning with young people. And if you're looking at this with a 30-year window, if I have 10 years left in my career, I'll just stick to what I've been doing. But if I've got a 30 or 40-year career, hopefully ahead of me in politics, I'm looking at this and saying, "Wow, the ground is shifting." It'd be great if the court settled this, so I just didn't have to answer the question. Um, but right now, it's intention, and you're going to, you know, potentially have this as an issue. Uh, certainly in the legislature, if if not a law, then as a resolution, you know, uh, Ted Cruz has raised his head and said, you know, he thought this was a travesty from the U.S. Supreme Court and thought they should step in. Mike Huckabee is saying that he's going to leave the Republican Party if, if they can't, you know, put judges in place who uh, can't see this as clearly as he thinks they ought to be able to see it. Where is he going to go? Uh, he said he was going to start an independent thing for for God fearing Christians. Mm-hmm. And, he and Alec Baldwin could both leave the country together. Um, and, and start their own country. It'll be it'll be great. Um, so you know, I think it's a it's a really interesting political issue. It's it's happening a little bit too late, and there's not really a, a race where this is a big issue in this particular election cycle. But as you go through the next legislative session and into the next cycle well, and a, into the presidential race, I think it will be.
3: I mean,
0: it's not. A, could it have been an issue in this cycle? It's obviously something that Greg Abbott, as the state's attorney general is involved in, right? He filed the appeal for the state to the He's Fifth defended Circuit. the State's
1: Defense of Marriage Act and, you know, has been um vociferous about it. And, you know, it's clearly an issue where he and Wendy Davis are on opposite sides. It's clearly mm-hmm. an issue where Dan Patrick and Leticia Vandepute in the Lieutenant Governor's race are on opposite sides. Mm-hmm. And they haven't stuck their head up as much, but I think um uh, Dan uh Sam Houston and Ken Paxton in the Attorney General's race, same issue. I just think it's flaring a little bit late. And it's not clear what an elected official could do at this point other than just you know sit by the phone and wait for the court to call and yeah, I
2: think if anything, it helps the par that both parties sort of lay the groundwork with young Hispanics who are becoming who are going to become a much larger voting population in the next in the coming elections, and obviously the tides are turning within them in terms of what they think about gay marriage
0: and Perry has said that on his presidential bid he doesn't want to be talking about social issues like this, so we'll see if that really becomes a big thing for him in the meantime he has to deal with his indictment and Terry's going to give us the latest on that as soon as Ross gets this comment in
1: well i just i think this is going to play in the early days of the presidential race it's you know we're already in the we're already at the beginning of the financial primary for president and these candidates are going around talking to people who put the seed money into presidential campaigns and you know this is going to be an issue where are you on this how does that position you against the other republicans in this race it's not going to be an issue on the democratic side and e- even if there were more than one candidate over there i think it's you know hillary and the dwarves and
3: mm-hmm. at, at this
1: point but the republicans have a bunch of candidates and they're all going to find their place on the spectrum for this issue and then hope that it lands them in the right place with voters you know, for an election that's 18 or 18 or 20 months away.
0: Which spectrum is that? Is that like the Kinsey scale?
1: (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) Masters of primaries.
0: (laughs) So, Terry, what's the latest with uh, the Perry indictment? His lawyers filed something?
3: Yes, they did. Um, You know, we're in this sort of uh, pre-trial motions back and forth, the tit for tat. You'll see a lot of stuff with my mother would call the Nicky Hokey stage, where it it seems petty. The but, Nicky Hokey stage. Well, the <laughs> it's like stage. a country music star. You know? Yeah, it's like very Nicky Hokey. It seems petty, but but can
0: we back? It? What is what what is Nicky Hokey? I don't
3: petty. know what Nicky Hokey petty.
0: is. Is that like a nonsense? Is that is there someone with that name?
3: No, there's no one with that name. <laughs> is it just a nonsense phrase? <laughs> it's a nonsense phrase.
0: We don't uh, like to, we don't like those on our <laughs> <laughs> podcast. It's picky picky. It's, it's just very a, yeah. picky. Right.
3: Um, but you'll see that in this pre-trial Phase and what we're seeing right now is a motion from Perry's um, legal team that the special prosecutor it was not properly sworn in. So, therefore, this proceeding needs to, you know, halt or, or whatever. But he has not really been sworn in. So, this is an objection they're making right now. But
0: the special prosecutor
3: seems to think he was sworn in. He remembers being sworn in, and so does the judge. So both of them, this will come up probably on Monday when we have a sort of a housekeeping uh, check-in with both sides. There's not really anything going to be decided um, because right now we have motions to quash from the Perry team on the indictment. We don't have a response from the special prosecutor who may or may not have been sworn in properly. Um, But McCrum has not filed his responses. He's 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 the special prosecutor. He is the special prosecutor. Mike McCrum of San Antonio he has indicated that he'll probably have those responses filed later in October. He's hired a second attorney, David Gonzalez of uh, Austin and so we've got two attorneys uh, two prosecutors now Um, but yes, this issue about whether or not he's been sworn in seems to be um, that will probably be the first thing they talk about on Monday's hearing.
1: None of this looks like a fast close for the governor here.
3: No. No. It's unless
1: different. I guess, unless the judge came in and said, "Well, yeah, it, you know, this this particular Nicky Hokie is a good one." <laughs>
2: Nikki Hokie, yeah. right? If anything, it seems to even delay a little bit longer. But you never know. The
3: Nikki Hokie can, you know, um, sometimes these, prevail. Work. Right. these work. These Hud- work.
1: Kay Bailey Hutchison, when she was uh, uh, indicted, got her indictments knocked down a couple of times. Right um, here in the Nicky Hokie stage.
2: Yeah, in the Nicky Hokie so. <laughs> stage. Yeah. Say Nicky Hokie one more time.
0: <laughs> I hope we can get Nikki Hokie to do our TripCast intro next week. <laughs> Maybe Nikki
1: Hokie will help. <laughs>
0: Help part with the music.
1: <laughs> I hear they're very good. They were played, playing it at a small stage at ACL.
0: Yeah. It was one of those early morning. Right. Yeah. But can, can you also update us on, on another ah. legal battle that is brewing and soon to overtake the media?
3: I, I, I doubt that. Uh, but uh, we've got a voter ID, a federal case down in Corpus Christi where a judge is going to make a decision sometime. We don't know yet when. Um, but the judges are so lazy. <laughs> <it>? <laughs> they're
2: going to wait until Friday at <laughs> five sitting p.m. In the back room
3: full of pillows and a hookah. Welcome there. to I mean, my life. Not, <laughs> not <doing anything. laughs> anyway, we've got a federal judge of Corpus Christi, and she is uh, considering uh, the evidence she heard at trial down there. Meanwhile, uh, up here in Austin, the Larry Myers, who is the Republican turned Democrat on the Court of Criminal Appeals, has filed his own. Lawsuit. And
1: running for a spot on the Texas Supreme <laughs> and Court. And
3: running right? for a spot on the Texas Supreme Court. But uh, he says this is not
1: a campaign gimmick.
3: He says it's not a campaign gimmick. But he is he is suiting, suing the state of Texas over uh, voter ID. He says the statute clearly says uh, that, the, that the state has to prevent and punish election fraud, not prevent it. That's not in the statute. So, therefore... Uh, He says that this is dissuading voting, and that um, the law is wrong, and so that's where we are right now.
1: So they're only supposed to act, he says, when when actual voting fraud has taken place, not not when it might.
3: Right, not when it might. Okay. So we'll see where that goes. So is she likely
1: to rule before the? Excuse me. Is she likely to rule before the election, or or, I mean, are the lawyers speculating about that?
3: They aren't. um, But she has kind of kept this action, and we're talking about the corpus federal case again. she has moved that along. So we there seems to be a sense that in all likelihood she would before the election. But no one can say. But
1: it's unlikely it would disrupt this particular election since this election's already underway. Right. Or do we even know that?
3: Uh, I don't think it would. But you know, yeah. I'm, has the, I'm not a lawyer by trade. Ross.
0: <laughs> has the uh, what I'm blanking on his name, the judge on the Court of Criminal Appeals.
3: Larry Myers.
0: Did he Has he said what the tipping point was for him to switch parties?
3: Yeah, uh, on switching parties, I don't know. Um,
0: He
1: probably has, but we're all—
3: I think Jay's—that's Jay's Jay's department. He wrote that story.
0: But it it was not—it was before voter ID. Well,
1: this is not the issue that is—
3: No, he did that last year.
1: Yeah, it was well before because he ran in the primary earlier this year and filed last December Mm -hmm. as a Democrat. How
0: long was he a Republican for?
1: The whole time he was on the Court of Criminal Appeals, I think he came it's on in era. the early 90s, right. early to mid-90s. Yes. Fort Worth uh, Fort Worth judge. Well, in our final
0: minutes here, could you, speaking of political races and parties,
1: give us a little update on how their fundraising is going? Uh, their fundraising is going uh, kind of as you might expect. You know, Greg Abbott, whatever else you might say about him, is a prodigious fundraiser. He's really, really good at this. He has 30... Million dollars in the bank at the beginning of the month, which is, you know, sort of the Brewster's million line here is he could spend a million a day between now Mm -hmm. and the election if he wanted to and and, um, never raise another dime. I don't think he'll have to spend that much. I don't think he will spend that much. I think, you know, there's uh, he might want to run again. Well, I think he might want to run again. And, you know, the way (laughs) he got this far, the way he got through the Republican primary was he had so much money in the bank that nobody dared challenge him. I mean, even if they disagreed with him, you know, not much evidence of that. But even if another Republican had been prominent and wanted to be governor and had disagreed with Greg Abbott, they were looking at this mountain of money saying, I, can, I can't I can compete with this guy. Um, he's in that situation again. His opponent in the general election, Wendy Davis, has been playing, you know, three-card Monty with the accounts again. And, you know, so there's a Wendy Davis account and there's a Battleground Texas account and you're supposed to count this much money and not that much money and whatnot. She has about a sixth of the money that Abbott has. And, and a lot of it is in-kind. Well, uh, and, and so the question right? going forward here is it costs between a million five and a million eight per week to run statewide television at the level that you need to run it to really prosecute a statewide campaign. So Abbott clearly has all the money he needs. Davis probably has enough, but you know not as much. Uh, Dan Patrick probably has enough. He went up um, with a new ad, you know, the day we were taping this podcast on Wednesday um, on immigration and border security. And Letitia Vandepute probably doesn't have enough to do wall-to-wall television mm-hmm. from here on out. So in the governor's race, I think it's going to be a situation where the each of the two candidates has enough name ID and probably enough uh, presence with voters for the uh, people who show up. They're going to know the difference between Wendy Davis and Greg Abbott and have about the same amount of they have about the same amount of name ID. Dan Patrick, because he had you know partly because he had a busy and competitive Republican primary and then a runoff, has higher name ID than Letitia Vandepute. A greater number of people just don't know who she is, so she has the problem of hey get to know me, and B compare me with Dan Patrick. That's a that's a harder thing to climb, particularly if you're not as well financed as he is.
0: How much does conventional wisdom on the you know, need to be on TV. Hold these days when, if you get an entertaining enough video on the internet, people will just cover that for you. TV is the strongest driver.
1: I, I mean, all the you know, even the social media wizards who are you know selling nosewares now to all the campaigns. say TV is still the biggest driver, and you know it's inefficient, it's expensive, but if you have the money, um, you do TV because it's the it's the one that works the best.
0: Yeah, and I guess probably the most viral. Videos of this whole election cycle have been from David Dewhurst, and look how that worked for him. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so. And yeah. he had the money.
1: And and you know, doing a viral video is such a such a. It's like buying a lottery ticket. You never know exactly what's going to go mm-hmm. viral and why. It might go viral for all the wrong reasons, and then you're dead.
2: Or who it will go That's viral un- among? I mean, you right. just, it might not it's be funny. the voters that you're trying to get it's out.
0: Unfortunate loop back to our the beginning of the podcast. Right?
2: <laughs> oh no. <laughs>
0: Um, well, I'm sure that this episode of the Tribcast will go viral for sure. Terry oh, Terry will be tweeting it. <laughs> and if you would like to ask any questions or send any comments, you can email us at, what is our email? Tribcast at Texas We would like to, as always, thank Shiny Ribs, who's a much better band than Nikki Hokey, for doing our music each week. <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of Ross, Terry, Alexa, and our producer Todd, this is, this is, Todd is Reeve. Here. Thanks for listening. Texas
1: talking. Texas talking
0: about. Talking, baby. Hello, not hello. Thank you. No, I can just keep going. <laughs> <laughs>